All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, Noted Naval Analyst Brian Clark is just back from attending the Indo-Pacific Symposium in Australia, which was also attended by the U.S. Navy's far-reaching Unmanned Service Division 1. He'll discuss some of the issues of what he heard and saw, including some of the many aspects of the AUKUS Australia-UK-US partnership, and bore in on the unmanned ships picture in the U.S. and down under. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The USS Thomas Hudner on November 15th shot down an aerial drone launched from Yemen while the destroyer was operating in the Red Sea, U.S. Fifth Fleet said in a statement. The drone, thought to be operated by Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen, was headed for the ship, said U.S. Central Command. The Pentagon on November 16th declined to provide further details other than to say the Hudner was not a specific target of the drone. U.S. forces throughout the Middle East region are on alert, with the Pentagon noting that there have been 55 attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria between October 17th and November 15th. USNI News on November 17th reported the carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower was operating in the Gulf of Oman and could enter the Persian Gulf at any point. Eisenhower is one of two U.S. carrier strike groups continuing to operate in the region as the USS Gerald R. Ford remains on station in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker Polar Star left Seattle, Washington, November 15th to begin her annual Operation Deep Freeze deployment to Antarctica, where the key mission is to break a channel through the ice to resupply McMurdo Station. It's the 27th such cruise for the 47-year-old ship the Coast Guard's only heavy icebreaker. In new ship news, the U.S. Navy on November 16th awarded a $130 million contract to HII Ingalls Shipbuilding for advanced procurement of long-lead material for the next big-deck amphibious assault ship, the yet-to-be-named LHA-10. This is the first major contract for the new ship. A start of fabrication ceremony was held November 13th for the future destroyer Thad Cochran, DDG-135, at Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Delivery of the Flight 3 Arleigh Burke-class destroyer is scheduled for 2027. And Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced November 15th that the future destroyer DDG-141 will be named Ernest E. Evans, honoring the commanding officer of famed destroyer USS Johnston, DD-557, sunk in October 1944, charging Japanese warships during the battle off Samar. Evans, who went down with his ship, received the Medal of Honor for his actions during the battle. Marine Corps Commandant General Eric Smith was released November 15th after being in a Washington, D.C. hospital since suffering a heart attack on October 29th. Smith will require a further procedure to repair a congenital heart condition. In the meantime, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Christopher Mahoney, is performing the duties of the Commandant while Smith recovers. And retired U.S. Navy Captain Don Walsh, who commanded the Navy's Bath Escape Trieste, passed away November 12th at the age of 92. Walsh, as a lieutenant, made worldwide news in January 1960 when he and Swiss oceanographer Jacques Picard rode the Trieste to the bottom of the Challenger Deep 
in the Mariana Trench, a depth of 35,814 feet. Walsh served 24 years in the Navy, received numerous awards, and was unfailingly helpful to scores of people involved in deep-sea operations and the ocean environment, as well as to historians and journalists. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, let's move to the discussion portion of today's show. We are pleased to be joined again by friend of the pod and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, Brian Clark. Brian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Chris. Great to be here. Good to see you, uh, both you and Chris. You, along with one of your fellows in crime, uh, Dan Pat, another senior fellow at Hudson, you guys put out a report, Raising AUKUS's Second Pillar, Integrating Uncrewed and Other Emerging Technologies into the Australian Defense Forces. And so as a result of this report, and we'll talk a little bit about the report, but a lot of the issues will be raised uh, in the context of your recent trip. This report took you down to Sydney, um, where you participated in a uh, conference, the Indopac Expo, that uh, went on in Sydney um, in the middle of November. Um, can you give us a, a sense of how that trip went? First off, why did you go down? And then let's let's talk a little bit about uh, things from the report that uh, you talked about with the Australians and with uh, some of the U.S. industry that was down there. Uh, yeah, Chris. Uh, so thanks for having me on to talk about it. Um, so Dan and I completed this study uh, just in just prior to the conference uh, at the request of the Australian government. So we had been working with the uh, Australian DOD uh, over the last year or so uh, in connection with the study we did for the Navy, the U.S. Navy, on how to field unmanned systems uh, more quickly and, and make them more relevant. Um, and the Australians asked us to look at a similar study for them. So we we kind of did a quick turn study for them, looking at how they should uh, build a process for incorporating uncrewed systems into the force uh, because um, you know, they're a smaller military, they're relatively new to unmanned systems. They really hadn't thought through or built a, a repeatable kind of sustained process for how you deliver unmanned systems and how you think about operational problems. How do you translate those into solutions? And then how do you bring those technologies in and integrate them and then field them? Um, and they've stood up some new organizations like the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, uh, which is sort of a what we would think of the U.S. as a mixture of DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit, with um, the SCO or the Strategic Capabilities Office. So it's a it's supposed to be uh, an organization that quickly brings up commercial technologies in and fields them. So they've got new organizations, they've got money, they're allocating towards this as part of AUKUS Pillar Two, but they hadn't really thought, you know, hadn't really developed a process. So we we came up with the study, we did that work. Um, presented it down at the Indopac Expo, and it's really been used in a lot of ways to shape how they are going to do uh, uh, unmanned system development and how they're going to incorporate these new technologies into the force uh, more quickly. Uh, so it was, it was very focused on that. And then we're going to transition and, and do a study next year for them looking at exactly kind of what systems uh, and what operational concepts they should be pursuing to address their operational problems, which are a little different you know, than the ones the U.S. is facing. Um, so we, I took that down there and presented it in Sydney um, as part of the expo because uh, they had asked us to, to come down there and kind of talk about it with uh, the group down there, which is you know predominantly Australians. Um, and I can, you know, I can address sort of there's a there was a large U.S. contingent there as well. But um, the, the expo is really there to mostly allow Australia to talk about you know, its role in the world, the role of sea power, uh, and also to basically try to bring in uh, partners and allies in the region uh, and better align their efforts um, to address the challenges they have, which which are not all China focused, but predominantly China focused. 
So let, let's just do one housekeeping issue. AUKUS uh, Pillar 1, most people know submarines. <laughs> I think th I think that has been the most explained and most detailed in the U.S. In US circles. Pillar 2, it, it is unmanned, but there's other things. It, just very briefly explain right. Pillar 2 so that folks that aren't as familiar, you know, have, have a sense for right. it. And, yeah, yeah. So AUKUS Pillar 1, as you said, um, the Navy recently came out while actually while this conference is going on, they talked about the fact that the submarine sales to Australia are going to go down in about 2032, 2035, and then maybe a new build submarine in 2038. And we can talk about how that may or may not proceed. Um, Pillar 2 is about uh, the basket of emerging technologies, which is kind of a grab bag for everything that's not submarines. But it's mostly uncrewed systems, uh, quantum technology, hypersonic uh, technology, um, electromagnetic warfare um, and related technologies. Uh, and then, you know, some other things like space. Uh, the um, yeah, Australia has a, has a long history with electromagnetic warfare and has done a lot with the U.S. And, and we basically share almost all of our technologies in that area. So there was some discussion about that at, at the at the expo, but that's really been um, you know one area where we've already cooperated. So Pillar Two doesn't necessarily bring anything new to that. Um, I think most of what is new about Pillar Two is in uncrewed systems, and so that was a huge focus of the the conference was uncrewed systems as an element of this Pillar Two grab bag of technologies. Uh, because there's a lot of Australian companies developing uncrewed systems uh, they intend to sell to Australia's military, but also are hoping to export back to the U.S. And what's interesting is the discussion down there about AUKUS Pillar 2 ended up being a lot more about the Australian technologies making their way back to the U.S. than about U.S. technologies making their way to Australia. Um, there were a lot of U.S. companies there trying to sell, um, in particular, their unmanned system technology to Australia. And I found that in general, they were not making having a lot of traction. Um, and that's because I think the Australian military seems to, you know, which makes sense, have a have a preference for their homegrown uh, businesses and their homegrown systems. Um, and also, I think a lot of those homegrown systems uh, are coming out of like the venture capital world where they have a lot of money to put in and do a, a lot of R&D on their own dime, uh, which saves the Australian DOD um, some cash. So I think there's a couple of reasons why the U.S. companies, I think, have had difficulty really breaking into that market, um, despite a massive effort that I saw down there at, in Sydney um, to do so. But I think, you know, in terms of pillar two, I think uncrewed systems is sort of the near term, you know, what people are going to focus on. Uh, quantum technology, maybe uh, the longer term and the midterm, I think hypersonics will be an element of this because there are a lot of opportunities for testing of hypersonics down there. Does this help sort of raise all boats, if you will? I mean, th this whole I mean, you, you know, we have seen um, the exploding market and exploding need in Ukraine. Before that, we saw it in right. um uh, you know, former Soviet republics. We've seen it in in Israel. Uh, you, you know, those were really the battlefield uses of uncrewed technology. Do you see AUKUS as a way? I mean, yeah, there's the sort of you, you know, does uh, uh, do Australian companies come to the U.S. market or U.S. mark U.S. companies go to the Australian market? But do you see this kind of as a floating of of all of this, both to help? normalize this technology from an right. operational standpoint and also sort of force a more integrated approach to how we think about it? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. So I think on the industry side, uh, it just expands your capacity for building these systems, right? And the Australian systems are generally going to be less sophisticated, less complex, uh, easier to build in volume. I mean, for one example, one company um, 
Uh, C2 Robotics is building a uh, UUV down there called the Speartooth, which they're building for, you know, in the tens, if not $100,000 range. And it's a, a large UUV um, that can be expendable um, on a lot of its missions. And they can build it in volume. It's composite build. It has a lot of, you know, commercially derived technologies. Um, that's not really the kinds of things you see a lot of the U.S. companies pursuing. The U.S. companies are pursuing kind of the more robust, longer lived, you know, more capable systems. And I think what Australia might bring, like a lot of allies, bring to bear is, is industrial capacity to build sort of the less expensive, less sophisticated systems that we need uh, at scale, kind of what is being employed in Ukraine in a lot of cases. Um, I think the other thing they bring is um, Australia's uh, Navy in particular uh, is going to depend on unmanned systems to be able to cover the vast areas they have to be able to manage, right? So both both from the protection of border protection office, which is like other Coast Guard's uh, uh, responsibility, the border protection office has a lot of need for unmanned systems for surveillance and monitoring. But then their Navy has a lot of unmanned system needs that come down to you know, targeting and potentially engagement of threats just because it's a small fleet. It just can't you know, reach the areas and the ranges uh, that it needs to. And power projection you know, might depend on the manned systems too until they get these AUKUS submarines. So the Australian Navy seems to be much more uh, energized about integrating unmanned systems into the mainline fleet than the US Navy, because the US Navy can get away with having these continue to be an adjunct to the main fleet. But in Australia, they're going to have to be a main component of the fleet because they just don't have any other way to, to get the reach, the persistence that they need. So it, operationally, I think it brings a conceptual approach to unmanned system integration that the U.S. has not really adopted. So I think you might see a lot more interesting operational concept uh, development happening in Australia than maybe in the U.S. Do you get a sense that that will help push the U.S., um, you know, both from a you know, an industry standpoint as, as industry experiments and does more, but also from, uh, you know, whether it's Indo-PACOM or any of the other, um, you know, Pacific uh, facing uh, commands that may, you know, work with the Australians. I mean, is this, does this help bring us to where we need to get um, or is it sort of tangential uh, no. and, you, you know, who knows? No, I think there, there, it's. I think it definitely will help. So, Autonomous Warrior, uh, which is the big Australian naval unmanned system exercise, happened just before Indo-Pac, and that's why uh, the USV uh, USV division from the US was there was to participate in Autonomous Warrior, um, and that really is focused on how do you integrate uncrewed systems, you know, into your mainline fleet to do real world operations, not just use them as you know surveillance platforms or adjuncts to your existing fleet. Um, and I think that there were a bunch of US people there, so it was a very strong Indo-Pac and Pacific Fleet presence at that exercise. So I think the you are going to see this sort of sharing of a, a willingness to be more forward-leaning on the experimentation from Australia. That's going to be carried back. And I know PAC Fleet is very interested in you know, taking on some of those lessons and incorporating those into its own concepts, which is much farther along than what you see coming out of DC, right? So back here in DC, the discussions very much about the unmanned systems being a, a you know complement or an adjunct or a teammate you know to the manned platforms as opposed to being like fully integrated into the force. Uh, Brian, um, so you, you just mentioned the unmanned service division. Mm -hmm. This is this is something that we we're terribly interested in, um, and I think one of the boats was uh, was actually the pier side right. expo uh, while you were there. I, I know you're very familiar with this and it's part of your study, but this is the the largest unmanned service vessel demonstration ever by anybody anywhere and it's far beyond anything anybody's ever done so what we have here are four of the unmanned the u.s navy's owned they, they own these now these are not contractor operated like we have out in the fifth fleet the task force 59 right. stuff. 
Um, this is actually U.S. Navy operated, owned and operated uh, craft. Um, two of them were built for the Navy. Uh, a couple of them are the former Ghost Fleet uh, vessels. But they're all, they've, this has been going on for months. They based in Southern California. Uh, they crossed to Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii. They did exercises there. They crossed to Guam. They crossed to Japan. So they've actually gone across the entire Pacific, the world's largest ocean. Um, this, that, this, that was a, a plan that was, uh, that was being planned for at least a year. Uh, what wasn't planned, my understanding, is that is adding on, let's go to Australia. Japan to Australia all by itself is a right. heck of a voyage um, through the South China Sea, through through mm -hmm. a lot of awful lot of traffic, um, lots of navigational issues there. Um, pretty impressive accomplishment all by itself, just Japan to Australia. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're going to have to go somewhere else now in Australia, from Australia. Um, there's an LCS, Littoral Combat Ship, the USS Oakland, that is acting as a mothership. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what Littoral Combat Ships were designed to do, support multiple unmanned uh, platforms in all domains. Um, duh. Um, and so it's actually doing this. Um, but I don't know where this leads. I mean, it's a, it's it's one heck of a demonstration. Um, it's certainly unprecedented. Um, I don't know where this is going to sit in programmatically. Uh, the large uh, USV uh, program and the medium USV programs are not really happening um, right. from the U.S. Navy, despite endless talk, uh, lots and lots of talk about innovation and technology and all this. Yep. And, you know, OK, fine. Show me the money. Um, I don't see I, I mean, unless something miraculously appears in the uh, 2025 budget, which could nominally is going to come out in about two, three months. Um, it's not there. It's just not happening on any and certainly not on any scale. It's just it's just drives and drives. Um, and yet you have this major push. You were there. You were on the ships. Right. You saw the ships. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested. So, I mean, in talking to people, was this making any impact? Did anybody notice this? Was it, it was part of the discussion beyond just say, look at this. Okay. Right. Down in the weeds, look at it in what context from, from being in Sydney, what's, what's the response? What's the reaction? And, and, and what do you make of that? Well, it was, I, uh, it's a great point, Chris. So the um, so the Sea Hunter, uh, the uh, Mariner, the Oakland, and then the other ships all participated in Autonomous Warrior just before this, right? So they came into port after having completed what was a very successful uh, exercise. Um, and Autonomous Warrior is probably the best orchestrated of these. Uh, it's sort of like the integrated battle problem we do in the U.S., but the much larger scale. And they do some real-world operations where they try to get the unmanned systems to actually help do the things that the Navy has to do there. Um, so there was a huge discussion about the about the success of that exercise, about the use of unmanned systems, how they need to be integrated into the force. The the uh, Australian Navy officials were all talking about it, uh, about how they need to embrace unmanned technology as a kind of fundamental element of the future Navy and that they really cannot accomplish their missions if they don't have a big unmanned component to the force. So much more about the centrality of unmanned systems down there than we see here in the U.S. The discussion here, as I said, is still very much about the unmanned systems kind of at the edge or kind of, you know, they add more capacity or add more reach or persistence to the existing manned fleet. Down there, this is, it's, you know, unmanned is going to be, you know, maybe a, a, probably a larger portion of the fleet than the manned part uh, in the Australian Navy. 
um, and looking at Australian Navy unmanned systems as maybe the initial uh, opportunity to do power projection, right? Because the, until they get these AUKUS subs and really have very many of them, they're going to probably depend on UUVs uh, or even UAVs to be the thing that they can use to retaliate against attacks you know, that they they receive. Or you know, how would they have some kind of long range, range strike option? It's probably going to be unmanned systems that provide that initially um, and maybe still the predominant part of it. So yeah, very, very much a discussion about the centrality of unmanned systems rather than treat them as a as an add-on but it, was there more of a specific impact about this deployment the americans being yeah. there you're talking you're talking generally oh no yeah definitely there was so the the conference included um the the, the expo includes like three big conferences the sea power conference which is run by the navy australian navy um there's a, a autonomy conference uh and then there's a, a naval architecture conference which is like our asne conference here the you know, naval engineer type people they all had an unmanned component and they all had people talking there jerry daly uh from the usv div was speaking at a couple of those conferences um all three conferences included people talking about unmanned systems and they all reference to the uh, exercise, the autonomous warrior, as well as the USVs that are sitting down on the harbor right below the convention center. So as you walk into or walk out of the convention center, you could not help but notice that there was the sea under sitting there right on uh, pier side. Um, and then I think Mariner was there for part of the time as well. So you, could, you couldn't avoid them. They were right there. Um, and when uh, they did like the uh, Admiral's reception at the beginning over at the Navy base, uh, there was the Oakland and there was another one of the USVs over there. So you really couldn't miss them. Um, also, the uh, Australia's uh, mothership for its own unmanned uh, surface vessels was there um, also, which is the um, guidance um, was at the Navy base. So, yeah, unmanned systems and the their, their the U.S. presence there was uh, kind of unavoidable. And it was talked about in every one of these events. What do you make? Of, I mean, you just heard me go off on the on this yeah. deployment. What do you make out of that and from from the intellectual, programmatic, operational right. side of it? So the Navy has done a terrible job of messaging on this because uh, your PAC fleet, um, I know, is, uh, Admiral Paparo is very personally involved in getting this deployment to happen, making sure that they did complex operations. It didn't just do, a, you know, kind of a, a tech demos and uh, you know, innovation theater, if you will. Uh, they did real world exercises that had real be benefit. Um, and Jerry Daly has been leading this uh, division on this deployment. And it's a real deployment, like a six-month, seven-month deployment. So he's not getting home until March of next year, approximately. So um, he'll be gone you know, for, for a regular deployment with this uh, division and the Oakland. Uh, and then they've been meeting up with other forces along the way to do uh, different events where they, com they combine with you know, other manned ships uh, to do operations. But the Navy's done a terrible job of messaging the fact that they have an unmanned system deployment underway, just like any other deployment that had come out of San Diego in approximately the same time frame. Um, when this is just seems like it's a, a revolutionary event where you know the Navy has actually got an unmanned system flotilla that's got a host vessel, they're doing real world operations with allies. Um, seems like that would be something you'd want to highlight um, in terms of your messaging about you know the competition with China and you know where's the trajectory of the fleet, uh, all that stuff. It, it's it's really a missed opportunity. Where do you see this going when they when when this is done? I mean, these are four small vessels. They're not transoceanic ships um, designed for large voyages. Um, two of them are crew boats, better better sea, sea keeping right. ability than normal. The, but the the two little uh, USV Sea Hunter and Seahawk are are really small vessels with outriggers, um, not trimarans. They're they're outriggers, and they're 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 not built for this. 
uh, this this deployment is going to take a real price on on the material condition of these ships. They are going to take a pound. Uh, right. One of them is in dry dock uh, in yep. in Sydney, yep. which is not a surprise. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Made right. these repairs happens to everybody. Um, but when they get home, um, I imagine one or two of them are going to be pretty darn worn out, right. and there's nothing in nothing in the pipeline. What what happens? Right. What happens when this is yeah over? yeah that's a good point i mean you brought up programmatics and you know the navy doesn't have a you know these are all r d pro r d uh, assets you know they're they're they've come out of the uh developmental programs that they're doing there's no procurement on the back end of this there's no path to being able to field these in large numbers and the the musv you know has a great utility in missions like anti-submarine warfare etc um i think and i think the navy has to kind of push back on the idea that you can solve all these missions with the small cheap commercially derived vehicles. I think there's got to be, a, you know, you, you have to have both, right? The commercially derived vehicles have a role for the inshore and some of the missions you see in like Ukraine. These larger vehicles are what you're going to need to do kind of, you know, open ocean missions like anti-submarine warfare, um, surveillance, you know, missile defense, um, and then maybe even strike. Uh, but to but to do that, you need a larger vessel that's got the sea keeping and the endurance. Um, and these vessels, as you said, you know, are doing it obviously they accomplished this this deployment but they're going to need to be you know backfilled you're going to need to do repairs on them or, or to replace them at some point they don't last forever so i think the navy you know by not having a, a pipeline of new uh platforms coming into this uh program it could end up kind of you know trailing off you know we these vessels may be pretty worn out after this deployment and if we don't have another tranche of them to come in and do the next deployment you know, the whole thing could lose a lot of energy and so i hope that this is an area where the cno and the secnav are focusing some attention but the fact that they've been not messaging it thus far suggests that maybe it's not the highest priority chris is going to ask you a little bit more about AUKUS, but i mean i can't help but ask as you were leaving cno's office i believe um secretary of the navy ray mabus at the time stood up n99 right which was right. supposed to be the sea daddy or sea mama for uh, uncrewed systems right i mean they were it was going to be it was going to kind of help push this thing forward and make sure it didn't get lost in the other high nines and i apologize to the audience for kind of really getting wonky but i do like i can't help but think about that and i pulled up the story that, you know, Mavis is gone like a month, February 8th, 2017. And my boss at the time, Admiral Richardson and uh, Admiral Moran and the folks in OpNav, they killed N99 because they didn't want a sea daddy or a sea mama for uh, uncrewed systems. They right. wanted it in the high nines. Do we kind of need to go back to somebody right. sort of programmatically advocating for that? I mean, it's great what Fifth Fleet's doing. It's great what um, Pappy's trying to do out in, uh, you, you know, the Pacific mm -hmm. and others, but like, does somebody need to net all of this together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what we found with the N99 was maybe it was too early. The technology wasn't quite there yet. So we weren't at a point where you could really mount a lot of procurement programs. These were still very much R&D efforts uh, back then. And so it kind of made sense to let's, you know, devolve that to the individual resource sponsors. They can figure out, you know, maybe how they want to employ unmanned systems as a, as a complement to the manned force. But now we're at the point where hey, the technology has improved. There's a lot of commercially available technology that you can employ. Um, we could rapidly bring this into the force. This is part of what the Disruptive Capabilities Office in the Navy is intended to do is it's been given money, it's got the resource sponsorship, it's supposed to be able to um, look at operational problems that commanders are facing, figure out what unmanned systems uh, and other technologies might get 
you know, integrated into it, some stuff off the shelf, basically, what can I pull together to solve that problem? And then can I deploy it and buy it in enough volume to get an initial tranche of it out there? And then eventually it becomes a program. That's what the DCO is intended to do. And I think it would help address this problem, but, you know, maybe fundamentally you need to create another, you know, recreate the N99 type of organization. Um, it can't just be about the unmanned systems though. You also have to think about the integration, you know, so whatever that organization is, has to think about not just buying the, the gear, but also paying for the digital integration of it with the other uncrewed systems, you know, and with the crude force. And I think sometimes that gets lost um, in, in the shuffle. But if you talk to the folks out doing the Task Force 59 project, they'll tell you that that's the big rub is how do you integrate this in a way that's, you know, hardened, militarily viable, you know, uh, sustainable, you know, over the long haul. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think that we kind of reached the point where we did turn back to that model because the technology is there and these aren't R&D projects anymore. We can now transition to actually just buying these systems, um, either the ones that are already built um, or the ones that are available commercially. Uh, Brian, before we go, I got to sort of ask a elephant in the room question. Now, of course, I was just at uh, submarine, uh, the Submarine League Symposium uh, here just outside of Washington, D.C., um, AUKUS at the top of the discussion list for everybody, massive interest. Uh, lots of questions about the impact on the U.S. submarine force and the U.S. submarine industrial base. And, of course, a ton of interest from industry, money, 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 money. Right. Um, at, everywhere. And you were just down in Australia. Um, the Australian, this is a this is a huge leap for the Australian Navy and industry and as a country. They've never built nuclear-powered ships. Um, they've only built one class of submarines, and that didn't go too well. Matter of fact, almost every one of their naval acquisition programs has not gone too well. Their hunter frigate program uh, is now five years in and a year behind and in serious trouble, and now they're questioning the entire selection process about that. That's not going well. Right. Um, they don't do major pro major naval acquisition programs well. They just have a history of that. Um, sorry, that's just facts. This is far more than anything else. Um, you were just down there. You're 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 in the middle of a, lot, of a lot of this swirl. What's your sense of confidence that Australia can actually execute the their right. end of the AUKUS program? Right. Uh, I think it's uh it's probably pretty modest at this point. So I'd say they're at a kind of 50% level. Uh, and here's what I mean is uh, the first phase of it, which is the increased deployments of US submarines and UK submarines to Australia, that's a pretty much that's already happening. I think they're pretty confident that they can continue that without too much difficulty. The next phase, which is doing more maintenance down there and actually ramping up the ability to support those submarines and extending the length of those US and UK deployments. I think they feel pretty good about that because the backup plan is you would send one of the US tenders down there and act as that industrial facility until the Australians are ready to go. So I feel like they pretty feel pretty good about going through that portion of it. And then when you get to the next phase, which is they start buying US submarines, I think the feeling down there is, yes, there's going to be still a willingness to purchase those submarines if the US will make them available. That's a huge point of contention here because it's going to be two submarines out of our current inventory, which will be, you know, like maybe five or maybe 10% of the sub available operational submarines at that time, just because of the maintenance issues in the US fleet. So are we going to sell whatever, 8%, 10% of our submarine fleet to the Australians? Um, that's a big question. And they, they know that. Um, now, down there, I would say that the the cost of buying those submarines is, is a contentious issue. 
Uh, you've got a labor government currently that's making nice with China that is maybe a little less interested in spending this kind of money down the road. If uh, they stay in office, there could be a lot of problems in terms of getting that money available to actually buy the U.S. submarines. Um, and then I think when you get to AUKUS SSN, which is where they're going to team up with the UK and build the next generation submarines, that seems to get a lot of support. So it seems like everybody you know, down there was on board with that idea of, you know, we're going to do it together. We'll get to do some outfitting in Australia. They won't build them in Australia. Um, we get to influence the pricing. You know, we can build a cheaper submarine, you know, that's probably more in line with our budget as opposed to these Virginia class that are going to be pretty expensive. So I think that that's where I that's where I come down at fifty percent is there's there's these areas where there's there's some risk and I'd say one big area of risk that they see is how do they manage the nuclear power program you know when they have a relatively small DoD and they don't have a huge cadre of nuclear engineers and there's a concern about sovereignty about if we are totally dependent upon the U.S. to help manage our program and do our maintenance then are we really deploying a sovereign capability or are we sort of now you know, beholden to the U.S. to allow us to use these systems in the way that we want them to? So sovereignty becomes an issue in there as well because of the, the lack of an independent capability in Australia. Okay. Well, Brian, this has really been a great talk, really interesting. Um, I'm jealous you get to go down to um, Australia and do really fun stuff and talk to fun people and see fun things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just, anyway, really, thank you very much. Um, My pleasure. Folks, we've been talking to Brian Clark, long, long time naval analyst. He is the uh, senior fellow and director of the Center for, for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Brian, thanks for coming back. And I hope to see you here again soon. You bet. Thanks, Chris. It was great to see you and Chris. Uh, great to talk to you guys. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Now, Mr. Cervello calls for a good idea tried once before to be tried again. Thanks, Chris. I'll try to keep this short and to the point. As we just discussed in our last segment, the world of uncrewed systems needs a sea daddy or a sea mama, and they need it now. This move will drive real requirements into the budgeting process by advocating for technology and operational concepts across numbered fleets and combatant commands. A resource sponsor similar to what Secretary Mavis tried to do in 2015 with the stand-up of N99 would be an ideal approach instead of relying on the current high nines to find resources and bandwidth for programs that compete with their other warfare priorities. The only caveat I'd suggest to what was tried previously is that it must come from CNO instead of being forced on an unwilling OPNAV staff by the civilian leadership. The time is right for Admiral Franchetti to take the lead on creating a new office. Unmanned systems are not nascent and fledgling. From the Ukraine conflict to the Middle East to plans to deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, the demand and growth of these systems has never been greater. The time for experimentation is ending. Let's normalize the requirement and quickly move forward. All right. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vagamoradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavaships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. 
We'll be taking some time off for Thanksgiving, but we'll be back the following week. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Bye.